Why do we have to bid? We started this industry. We saved them from going bankrupt. I said, so what do you want? Negotiate a deal. I said, fine. They usually do this every three years, 10 years. I said, okay. How much? You have 25% of the demand. 75%, they said. So I just repeated what they said. So what you're looking for is a 10-year deal, 75% of their demand, and negotiated, not bid. Yes. Then I looked at them and I said, well, you can really do this if you really want to. But the first thing you have to recognize, it takes a different set of actions to get to that result than it does to win a bid. So they're hooked. And they said, okay, how are we going to do it? I said, I have no clue. And they go, what? And I go, look, we haven't done that yet. So there's no historical data that has the answers. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Ron Carr. Ron is the CEO of Carr Associates and a best-selling author of two books, Lead, Sell, or Get Out of the Way, The Seven Traits of Great Sellers, which we talked about on Ron's first appearance on the show, and his most recent book, which we'll be talking about today, The Velocity Mindset, How Leaders Eliminate Resistance, Gain Buy-In, and Achieve Better Results Faster. As Ron shares, great leaders will do whatever it takes to make their vision of reality. And in the process, they achieve what he calls velocity. And he calls this a special quality of great leadership, which we're going to talk about today. So as we dig into achieving this velocity mindset, it requires a continuous alignment and realignment of a leader's thoughts and actions and those of others to achieve the objective. And we talk about how to make that happen, how to overcome the self-limiting beliefs that oftentimes hold leader back, and how to overcome the fear of failure that leaders often have that can become a bigger and more powerful problem than the failure itself. And Ron shares how this velocity mindset is tied to having a a larger purpose that a leader is focused on. We dive into how that purpose helps keep you open and receptive to the big ideas and the big opportunities that could transform your business. So all this and much, much more. But before we get to Ron, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. We'd really appreciate that. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Ron, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Andy. It's hard to believe, but it's been five years, almost five years since we last spoke for the show. Yeah, but time flies when it's between two good friends. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think, I'm trying to think we've run into each other in that time, but geez louise. Five years, as I said when we first started talking, is we both had color in our hair back then. So <laughs> I still have color; it's just a different one. It's just a different one. Yeah, me too. When you have red hair, you don't go right to gray; you go uh, blonde first, and then uh, transitions to losing all pigment. So, anyway, well, we're here to talk about your new book, "The Velocity Mindset: How Leaders Eliminate Resistance, Gain Buy-in, and Achieve Better Results Faster." So. Why this book? Why Why now? Well, it's a book that I was ready to write, and it was for the next phase of my life as I help my clients. So the longer story is, um, as you know, I was president of the National Speakers Association mm-hmm. 2013-14. And when I got done with the presidency, my speaking business has subsided because I was involved with NSA at a high level. But also at that point, I had nine surgeries that I had to prepare for. I didn't know it was going to be nine surgeries, but it was mostly on my back. Over on the your next back, yes, yeah, reading about yeah. that. Wow. So, um, you know how Tiger has one level fused in his back? I wound up having nine levels. Nine. Fused. So, which, which part of your back is that? 
It's between my thoracic 10 down to my lumbar where they fuse the SI joint into the pelvic bone. So what does that restrict you from doing? Well, you know, in the back, every level is independent. Right. So when you fuse two or more levels together, they become one unit. So, A, you lose a lot of flexibility, but I gained some of it back. I'm still playing golf, which is good. Oh, you are? Okay. Yeah. But um, bending down to the floor is a little difficult sometimes. And, um, and then you got to watch above the fuse because then it puts pressure on it. So you have to make sure that you don't do anything stupid up there. <laughs> wow. So that's, I mean, how many, that was nine separate surgeries? Well, when I was president and I knew I, I was going to give up the gavel, I had two facing me for uh, a uh, light case of melanoma on my nose, which basically was superficial. It didn't go in the system. So they had to do two operations, one to take it out, another one to repair it. And then I had the uh, three back surgeries, that's five, and then some other things they found that along the way that they took care of. <laughs> you know, I'm, my wife gives me a hard time about what a basket case I am from a medical perspective, but you're making me feel good about myself. <laughs> Well, I mean, as you know, I had another major surgery recently that was in the book, but we'll get right. to that later. But yeah, well, hey, you know what? You got to do what you got to do, right? We're still here and kicking, right? Yeah, I'm kicking. I'm, I'm doing well. I'm in the best shape that I've been in years. So what the heck? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I said beats the alternative. Right. So anyway, we were talking anyway, about... Getting back to your question. Yeah. So when I was laying on the, on, on the pain pills, you know, and you started reevaluating your life... And I looked at all my successes, and there was quite a few. But then I looked at the things I didn't get to, and I asked myself why. And I realized it wasn't because of external forces. It was mostly because of the stories and, that I told myself and the fears. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at that time I was approaching 60, so, you know, you start feeling like, you know, the runway's getting shorter here, so you don't have a lot of time. You better get going. So the concept of velocity was in my mind at that time. And when I studied the concept of velocity, number one, um, everybody thinks it's just speed. I mean, if I asked you what velocity is to you, you'd probably say speed and momentum. Is that fair, Andy? Yeah. Right. But that's not velocity. Velocity is speed with direction. Mm -hmm. And the key component is where you're trying to go. And if we're not clear on that, we don't believe in it, if we're not shooting for something properly, then any role will get you there. And many times we're doing tasks that don't make sense and we want, want to know why we didn't get to where we wanted to be. Right. It's because we didn't have a clear destination, we didn't believe in it, or whatever. So that became a passion of mine. Then I hired a gentleman to come and when I got back on the road to film me doing a speech in um, University of Texas. And he called me the next day because his job was not just to film me and do a little scissor reel, but to also recreate the brand. And he goes, I have your brand. I go, what? He goes, Velocity Mindset. Hit me between the eyes. And I said, how'd you come up with that? He goes, dude, it's all you talk about. <laughs> and well, if you look at your materials, you have it written in 2010. So what more do I need to say? So we started testing it with some CEOs who were my clients. And they all loved it. But what I realized is half of them loved it because they think they know what it meant. Half of them loved it. And they had no clue. Mm -hmm. They like the word velocity because everybody's in, in, in there. Yeah. Everyone loves the word, right. And a haste to get somewhere. Right. So we started working on that, and uh, it was really not anything different than what I was doing before, but we put together what it takes to live in a velocity mindset. And, um, and then, uh, you know, I was recuperating, and then I had to make up for the lost revenues and money for the surgery. So I had my plan of coming back. Mm-hmm. 
And then COVID hits like everybody else. And there goes the speaking calendar. There goes mm-hmm. that plan. You know, there's an old phrase, Andy, that man plans and God laughs. Yep. Yep. So, uh, so while my colleagues were going, okay, you know, what, you know, everybody's like fighting over the remote presentations and they're not really paying much. I figured I'm not doing that. I got two consulting retainers that, you know, that we're on retainer with. We'll handle that. They'll get me by. And why not write the book, The Velocity Mindset? So I did that. Finished it at the end of September. Okay. And then, uh, and then also with COVID, it has proved all of us started looking at what we're doing. Why are we doing that? Does it make sense? And I decided, mm-hmm. why not move to Florida then? Why wait till you're 70? Because you don't know how long you have. Yep. And, uh, why can't you live the lifestyle that you want? So I signed for a lease. And um, right after that, my intuition talked to me and said, you better go to the cardiologist because they've been tracking your aortic valve. It's been getting tighter. And you may not be going. <laughs> I said, oh, come on. And I'm saying to myself, dude, you just wrote about intuition in the book. Right. So why don't you walk your talk? So I went to the cardiologist. And sure enough, he pulled the fire alarm. And he said, it's so tight that you only have two years left and you can go instantly in six months. That kind of opened your eyes up. That would so, open your eyes quite a bit. Very I can for the lease and uh, go through the uh, surgery to replace the aorta valve. Went well. You know, so three months went by. And then I moved right into launching the book. But actually what I did was just before I went to the operating room, I rewrote the introduction to put the surgeon in there because she really checked off every box in the book as a leader. Yeah, you mentioned that. So, yeah. <laughs> mechanical valve or? No, I rejected a mechanical valve even though it would permanently solve the problem because then you'd have to be on blood thinners and I did not want that regimen uh-huh. the rest of my life. Right. So, they put a bovine valve in which should be good for uh, you know, 12, 15 years and then they'll have to go in through the leg again and replace that and that'll be that. All right, well. So we have got a brand new Ron Carr on the show. Every part replaced, perfect. Yep. Uh, looking for the long term. So, so let's let's talk about this idea of of leadership first, because right. you wrote that that everybody sort of recognizes what a successful leader looks like, or that leadership is easy to recognize. And I just wonder whether that's true anymore. Well, let's put it this way: make it simple. If you're following somebody because you want to and you believe in them, that's a leader. Okay. Now, just because you have a manager's title or an owner title doesn't mean you're a leader. It means you're a manager. The premise of the book was, what would the world look like if everybody acted like a true leader and not a victim of circumstance? Mm-hmm. Because in effect, we all lead our lives. We all make decisions right. of where we're going and how we're going to get there. So that's really what the intent of the book was, as well as to be, quote, unquote, a leadership book. That's why it's appealing to so many people, including parents and coaches and mm-hmm. so forth. But a leader, quite frankly, is not self-focused. It's customer-focused. The customers that pay for the products and also the employees who are customers mm-hmm. and the investors. Mm-hmm. So what they know is if they're going to succeed as a leader, they've got to stop being self-focused and be more focused around the needs and the wants of the people they're responsible for. That's what we call that customer focus, and it's a different mindset there. Yeah, so I want to dive into that a little bit because yes i define it a little bit differently but i'm interested in your take on this is you know i think okay if you if you're a manager you can be a leader or you can be a boss 
And, you know, the leader is just as you described, right? I mean, they're going to succeed through the efforts of their people. They're going to help their people find out what they're, what's driving them, what's the most important thing to them and help them achieve that, right? Whereas, and this is, you know, with sales audience, so sort of sales perspective, whereas the boss is, you know, it's about the numbers. It's about me. It's about me making my number, you know, uh, very directive, very prescriptive. And it seems to me, my feeling, as I was interested in your take on this, is, is that I've seen an increase in the number of bosses over the last five, ten years and seemingly fewer leaders. Well, we write about that in the book a little bit. So I come from a sales background and a sales consulting background, mm-hmm. not just leadership. So I'll give you a story that basically... Um, supports what we're talking about. So I had a client where the national account manager was a top producer as a sales rep. Who do we put back into management? The top producers usually. So he got the nod. Now, what's a top producer in sales usually? Top producer is a go-getter, someone who's going to break down the doors and is going to succeed based on their own efforts, basically. We have a lot of teams selling today, so don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. But the, but the salesperson knows that their destiny is really under their control and they right. go out and make it happen. Right. Right. Now they get promoted to a national sales manager role, let's say. Their job has changed, but many times they don't change in the way they approach it. Their job now changes where their success is not all about themselves anymore. Mm-hmm. Their success is actually the sum total of the success of all those people reporting to him. So in this one case, the guy never transformed into that new role. So what what happened was because he needed to be that firefighter, he had to respond to all the things and feel good about saving the day, all about him. Every time a a key account manager in Kansas City or whatever would call him up and say, hey, I got this issue, this big meeting with the client, can he come out and be there? He'd jump because that was feeding his emotion. He'd He'd get on the plane, he'd get out there. And then he made the cardinal sin of a leader or a manager, whatever you want to call it. His job was not to save the day. His job was to analyze as a coach, identify the gaps, and then fill those gaps in with the person. But instead, they go on a call. He takes over. He saves the day. He learns nothing about the capabilities of the person he, he had in that position. And he goes back. And he waits for the next fire alarm to ring. Problem is, that guy in Kansas City, whoever he is, He's going to call that manager the next time he's got a tough call. Instead, that manager's role was to analyze, coach this guy up so he wouldn't have to call him again. And he Mm -hmm. can do what he had to do 24-7 every day for the whole month. Imagine what the productivity would be at that point. Right. So that's a classic example where someone gets promoted, does not transform into what the new role is, and is still working on the old paradigm. And that's why often they don't succeed. Now, to a point you make in your book, so who is responsible for helping that newly promoted person change their mindset? I mean, you give examples about, you know, well, you, really have, you really have to depend on yourself. You need to have the, own, the agency. You need to own that agency to be able to make that change. Yeah. You can't count anybody to do it for you. But, you know, we do have this, this issue of, I believe, in sales today where... You know, we do just as you say. We we promote people that are top producers in the management roles, leadership roles, and then don't do anything for them. Don't help enable them in any sort of way. Right. So the number one person you look to is that person's boss. Hmm? 
and what is the communication and how they're communicating with your role as your mandate, but also finding out how they're going to do that and see if that person is going to have any challenges moving from one to the other. Obviously, consultants like you and I can help them. And also their peers or mentors. Mentoring is a big way of doing it. But basically, I would say the onus is on the uh, upper management that makes that promotion because they have to be aware that this is usually what happens. Are they prepared for that? Are they helping the person, you know, move into that position mm-hmm. properly? And how are they measuring it? That's where I would put the onus. Yeah, and I'm just wondering in your work, because you work with some fairly big corporations with your consulting, is there this awareness that exists that they're not doing enough to help groom this next generation of leaders? Well, it's not just big corporations. I'm also working with a lot of small to mid-sized high well, growth companies. They're definitely not doing that. I was just wondering if the they're big corporations <laughs> the big corporations are. Well, the big corporations probably do it a little bit better because if, if there's ever a difference between the smaller companies and the big ones, the big ones have established training programs, you know, employee development more than the smaller companies do. And then hopefully they're smart enough where this is something that they're going to have to upcoach someone on. Um, could they be doing a better job? I, obviously, because that was a big corporation, that example I gave you. From. So, yes, they need to anticipate it, they need to analyze it, and they need to coach that person up just like that person needs to coach up the people below him. To make it very simple, anytime you lead others, your job is simple. Make the people who report to you successful beyond their wildest dreams. And then you, in turn, will be successful beyond your wildest dreams. Your job is not to do their job. Your job is, yes, about the bottom line and numbers, but your job really is about making your people excel. Yeah, I know it's, yeah, it's you know, resonant of the old Zig Ziglar quote about if you help enough people get what's most important to them, you'll get what's most important to you. Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. But it's, you know, we see this trend and there's been all sorts of polls on LinkedIn recently about this as, you know, this huge dichotomy between uh, the manager's perception of how much direction and coaching they're providing their sellers and the seller's perception of how much they're receiving and fairly stark differences. Um, And it's like, yeah, we've got this huge gap we need to close. And I think part of that gets back to what you talk about is, is having a vision for what your job is. And it's wondering how do we how do we get the right vision instilled in people's minds so that they understand fundamentally because that, that this numbers show me not just LinkedIn polls but research has been you know done recently too is is yeah we're not teaching managers that they're only going to succeed through their people uh, they're much more self focused as you talk about right so vision is a big part of the book. Um, it's what we call the destiny, you know, velocity is speed plus direction. That's your direction. So one of the things that we talk about, and it goes not just for a new manager or a leader, but it goes for anything you want to do in life, whether like for me moving to Florida, what I want my next phase of life to be for anybody. We start, we say, start with the end in sight first and use a clean piece of paper. What do I mean by clean piece of paper? Every time someone tries to create a vision for themselves, they sometimes they have trouble thinking what it is. But really what stops them and puts a drag on their velocity is that when they're doing it, they're making the mistake of looking at the past experiences and the biases as to what they think is possible and not possible. Mm-hmm. The only way to really create your destiny is put that aside. Because if you don't, you're just going to recreate the same results and right. how often does that happen. Right. So a clean piece of paper simply means forget what you know, don't know, etc., 
If you can write your destiny that has your passion, what you really want, what would it look like? Allow yourself to dream, think big, and just put it down on paper. Don't analyze it. And then when it's down there, you can massage it a little bit. But that's your true destiny. Now, question is, do you believe in it? You may not have some belief in it because you haven't done it yet. Mm -hmm. So you may have doubts whether you could do it or not. And that's, that's normal. Okay. Is it something that you're passionate about? Check that box because, yes, you wrote it down. You have to be passionate. The passion's important because it brings you back up when things don't go right. Mm -hmm. Right. And is it doable? Well, we don't know yet. So now we've got to start flushing it out. Now, one of the things that stops people when they do that is they think they have to have all the answers up front. And that's the worst thing that you need to think about. Right. Think about this. If you're trying to accomplish something that hasn't been done before, how can you possibly have the answers up front? A leader's job is not to have all the answers up front. Leader's job is to understand where they're trying to go, what do they need to get there, what are the gaps, and then if they don't have the answers, what are the questions to find the answers that they need? That's their job. And that's what the people who below them look towards. So I'll give you a case study sure. on how this actually works in business. So uh, a multinational chemical manufacturer has used me for many divisions to speak at their meetings in the early 90s, and it worked really well. And his one division had me speak, and then they said, hey, you know, we are one of our biggest customers in the world, the biggest mining company in the world for copper is going up for bid. And that's how the industry bought. Every year, a three-year supply agreement for the lowest price. Now, for the last 20 years, they were working on a new reagent that basically cut in half the cost of mining copper. Right. So when they brought it out in the 1980s, the sales shot up, but then competition sees there's money there. They re-engineer. Mm -hmm. Their offering is not as good, so they compete on price. We know that drill, right? Right. All right. So now when they get a hold of me, that largest copper mine company is up for bid. Is it going to be a bid? And they said, can you come and get us ready for the next meeting next week with them? I said, sure. So I fly out to Tucson. I sit in the conference room with them. And my first question was, what do you want as a result of my intervention? They said, oh, we want to win the bid. I said, that was not the question. My question was, forget about the past and the experiences you know and what you think can and can't happen. Your true passion, if you created this deal the way you truly want it, what would it look like? And all of a sudden, that passion came out. Why do we have to bid? We started this industry. We saved them from going bankrupt. I said, so what do you want? Negotiate a deal. I said, fine. They usually do this every three years, 10 years. I said, okay, how much? You have 25% of the demand, 75%, they said. So I just repeated what they said. So what you're looking for is a 10-year deal, 75% of their demand, and negotiated, not bid. Right. Yes. Then I looked at them and I said, well, you can really do this if you really want to. But the first thing you have to recognize, it takes a different set of actions to get to that result than it does to win a bid. So they're hooked. And they said, okay, how are we going to do it? And I said, I have no clue. And they go, what? And I go, look, we haven't done that yet. So right. there's no historical data that has the answers. But what you have to do is you have to have that vision with the passion you just did, but then understand that the clarity of your vision only comes from going on the journey. So when they bought into that, they started going out. We came up with questions. They'd assess everybody else. They'd come back every quarter. We'd meet. We'd analyze, tweak the process. And the end result was at the end of 18 months, they actually motivated that customer 
to fill out the bidding process legally because mm-hmm. there were certain things that they did and to go into a negotiated deal. They closed a 10-year, $200 million contract negotiated for 75% of the demand. Mm-hmm. And it all started with that clean piece of paper. Right. So define the velocity mindset. The velocity mindset is designed to help you get to where you want to be in life in the shortest time possible, in the safest way possible. It's a way of living. Okay. For example, um, if you're doing something and it's not working two times and you keep doing it for another three times, you're creating drag on your resistance because if it's not working, why are you doing the same thing? You got to ask yourself as a leader, what can I do differently? And that's a common thread throughout the whole book. A true leader, whether it's a leader of your life, whether it's a leader of a team, your business or customers, whatever, if something doesn't go right, the first thing they don't do is blame somebody else. Mm-hmm. First thing they say is, what could they do differently? Andy, my first sales job was in 1980 selling copiers. And I remember this vividly. I was hired when Royal Business Machines came out with the first plain bond copier. 15 crisp copies, beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it was the dry bond toner, no more liquid where it spoiled everybody's clothes. Right. I said, well, where's the cold litter? Don't worry about it. It's coming in six months. Where's the duplicate? Don't worry about it. Well, that stuff didn't come for two years. So all I had was a 15 copy a minute copier. I call, call, and I got thrown out. I can't tell you how many offices I got thrown out in the first three months because the first question was, well, can you compete with the big machine on the third zero. Floor? Zero. Right. Yeah. And I go, no. And I said, well, come back when you can. So I could have easily blamed the company. But at the same token, I had to make a living. Mm-hmm. So I did what I talk about in the book. Sometimes to get velocity, you got to take a pause or even stop. So I paused and I had a board meeting with myself, me, myself, and I. We went to a, to a diner in New Jersey. And I started analyzing, say, what are you doing? I'm trying to sell a copy. Is it working? No, because they think I'm like the third floor and I can't compete. So what does a copier do? It's part of the communications process, the outcome. Well, maybe switch the conversation to that. So in the next call, I went to the office manager and I said to her, would you agree with me that a copy is nothing more than a communications vehicle? And they said, yeah. I said, well, what are your challenges when it comes to that? All of a sudden, Andy, her, you know, she starts spewing out all the challenges she has. She goes, look, if Sally or Peter on the first floor has to make one copy, they get up, they walk to the staircase, chit chat to everybody, go upstairs. Then they get to the third floor up. They got to wait behind all the mega jobs to make that one copy. Mm-hmm. Then they have to take that same journey back. It could take them two hours to get one copy. I said, how often does that happen in a week? She said, try the equivalent of two full-time employees. I said, would you like those two full-time employees back? She goes, how are you going to do that? I said, look, I'm not competing against the big machine on the third floor. It's a great machine. I'm here to solve your productivity problem. This is a great copier. All the studies show 15 copies per minute. It's for the ones and twos copies. Put one on every floor, you'll get those two full-time employees back. I started selling three at a time. Yep. Now, what changed? Did I get the collator? No. Did I get the duplicator? No. Did my company change anything? No. What changed was my mindset, how I approached it, realized it wasn't working, and then realize what was a better way to go through that conversation and the results speak for themselves. So if mindset's typically 
sit on a, a spectrum or a continuum. You know, like growth mindset on one end, fixed mindset on the other, and you know, you're you're somewhere a blend of the two, moving hopefully from a fixed to a growth. So what what's I'm curious, what's on the opposite end of the velocity mindset? That's, no one asked me that question before, but I'd say they, is a is a is a resistance mindset. Okay. Something that stops you. And a lot of what we cover in the book is the things that stop us. You know, when you think about what stops your moving forward or your, your speed, whatever you want to call it, 99% of the time has nothing to do with external forces. Oh, it's you, it, right. has to, it has to do with your mindset, how you're thinking. When COVID hit, all of us were in the same boat. Yep. You know, and some companies prospered because they had some products that were in demand. Most of the companies didn't prosper. What's the difference between those that got through it and those that didn't? Mindset. Mm. Plain and simple. When you think about what I did, my mindset was I didn't want to compete here. There was no money there. Write the book. It'll come out. And I kept going. I kept energizing myself and putting myself in a frame of mind that kept me sharp, kept my mind sharp. We put out a lot of videos. That comes from the mindset. Yep. Your mindset affects what you do. It also affects how you think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, I think velocity has elements of the growth mindset in it. It's all about abundance and opportunity. Uh, yeah, the book does a great job of sort of spelling out sort of the, the limiting beliefs that we all have that, that uh, you need to be pay attention to, let's say. So, may give us examples sort of some of the big limiting beliefs that we all encounter when we are uh, trying to change our mindset. Well, we all have it for different reasons, not all, most of us. I'm a fraud. Wait till people find out who I really am. Mm -hmm. Do you know that that one thought permeates some of the top performers in the world? Oh, yeah. Tom Hanks, after he does a meeting, and he's gotten Oscars up the kazoo. Everybody knows he's one of the best actors out there. But after he makes a meeting, he starts going to his own house saying, oh, my God, wait till it comes out. Wait till they think I'm a fraud. Mm -hmm. The only difference is it doesn't stop him. Right. He's used to it. But other people get stopped by that. So the trick is we all have stories that we tell ourselves since we were young. You're not going to eliminate the stories most of the time. But when you recognize that it's a story, what do you do to change it to get your velocity back? And the key point that I want your audience to understand, he who writes a story can change it. You can Mm -hmm. rewrite it. It's your story. So what do I mean by story? If you don't like the script, change the script. Yeah, exactly. So what do I mean by story? Somebody says it does something to you. We in turn create a story to what we think that, that, that was meant. Most of the time we're wrong. But yeah, that story is dictating how we feel that day, the decisions we make, and so forth. A common example, Andy, so a good friend of yours says something to you, you take as an insult. You interpret it that way. Mm-hmm. So what do you do? You stew about it. How much time during the day is wasted because it's bothering you? Right. And, and then we usually don't wait one day. It could be two weeks later before you finally speak to your good friend. And then when you speak to them and you realize that their attention was totally different than the way you took it, you're going, oh, man, was I a jerk? Yeah, well, that could be a, could be a boss or a manager, not necessarily a friend, right? Exactly. Yeah. Anybody. But yet, how much time did you spend on that that was taking away from your velocity? How did it impact your decision-making process and so forth? That's what we're talking about. So stories, another thing to remember, Andy, is stories are, fuel, are, are fueled by emotion. Mm-hmm. Some is good, some is not good. So, right. for example, 
If a teacher said to you, oh, you'll never amount to anything because you're so wild and you know rowdy, some people can take as a chip on the shoulders and prove that they're going to be good no matter what they do, and yep. they're always ahead of the game, and they win. That's good, but if they overuse it and now do it to the sacrifice of family and all that, it's not so good at that moment. But for the people, so the bottom line is if your story is serving you well, keep using it. If the story doesn't serve you well, person says you'll never amount to anything. Every time you try something new, oh, it's never going to happen. I'm not going to amount to anything. So you don't even bother thinking about it and trying it. That's when it doesn't serve you well. The only thing I'm asking you to do is recognize it's just a story. It's not a reality. Mm-hmm. And if you can recognize it's a story, then easily understand you can rewrite the story. So the next step is, what do I want the story to be yep. that's going to push me forward? Right. Yeah, and no, I something similar. My first sales training class, you know, roughly about the same time, you got started, uh, sent away a big company, sent us away two weeks, you know, National Training Center, come back, we have an evaluation from the instructor, which is, yeah, at that time, big companies, tech companies hired hundreds and hundreds of people with the express intent, they're going to weed out people over the course of a year. So the evaluation from the instructor was pretty decisive, or could be. So I remember handing mine to my, my branch manager and going back to my desk in the bullpen, waiting for him to come get me. And I, it was sealed, so I didn't know what it was. And he comes into the bullpen and sort of crooks his finger at me and says, you know, come with me. And I go into his office. and he's, I get there, he you know, sits in his chair, leans back, pulls the evaluation out. He's looking at it. He says, so, how do you think sales training went? <laughs> and I, uh, I thought, well, that's a trap question. It's like... Uh, I thought it went fine. He goes, oh, well, that's interesting because Jim, your instructor, thinks we should fire you because you'll never make a good salesperson. I was like, my first thought was, well, yeah, what am I going to tell my parents? I flunked out my first job in two weeks. But the second thought was, well, he said, I said, well, why? He said, well, because Jim thinks you're too analytical and you'll never make a good salesperson if you're too analytical. And I was like, that's something that yeah, I don't think about it necessarily every day, but I think about it frequently and have throughout the course of my career. It's like, huh. And so, yeah, if you if you buy into those stories, then, yeah, they can become very limiting. When I was uh, trying to get out a copy of sales and get into what I call the more professional sales position, I wanted to go after medical device sales. That was mm-hmm. the piece of resistance. Yes. You know, they had that company cars, that all this stuff, yep, you know, yep. and that's what I want. And I couldn't get a medical device sales job to save my life. And the excuse was always, well, you don't have experience. And I'd say, well, how are you going to get experience if you <laughs> don't do it right. try it? Well, you know, I, the story in my mind then was I'll never make it in medical sales. Well, thank God I didn't listen to that. I mean, I didn't get my sales job in that I went into computers, you know, local area networking and all that. But guess what one of my best markets is when it comes to speaking and leadership and sales consulting? Medical yeah. device companies. Because yeah. they brought me in as an expert and I, ha- I changed the way they thought. And one company that was valued at $98 million just went public, all of a sudden was sold for a billion dollars because they did what we told them to do. So that's an example of not letting those stories stop you. Things happen to us. How you're interpreting it is just your perception. It's not the reality. If it doesn't serve you well, rewrite it so that you can move forward. 
Yeah, as you talk about, create your own vision of where you want to go and right. how fast you want to get there. Yeah, and it's it's and it's not a. This is not just something for you know young people. Is is you know, as you talk about, you're sort of reinventing parts of your life. You're going to be moving where you're from, New Jersey, where you've been for ever, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for to Florida. That sort of uh, took some vision and uh, some velocity to make that happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think about myself as, yeah, I've probably had at least seven sort of distinct career stages, you know, where it took a vision, took a, a sort of a deliberate step to say, yeah, I want to I want to learn something new. I want to do something different. I want to achieve something else. Um, and it doesn't stop, you know, that got a new book coming out myself next February. Yeah, that's going to change things yet again. Um, so, Absolutely. yeah. All right. Well, Ron, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure, Andy. I appreciate everything that you're doing, and thank you for the opportunity to spend some time with you and your audience. Yeah, we'll try not to wait again five years. <laughs> there you go. And when your book comes out, let me know so we can help you, too. Oh, I appreciate that. So uh, if people want to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, if they go to VelocityMindset.com, that's VelocityMindset.com, we have a couple of interesting things there. First is a free leadership assessment. Mm-hmm. It's a five-question analysis of how you think of yourself as a leader. But more importantly, it then gives you best practices and how-tos to move forward in each of those areas. So people love that. That's number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, you can download a free chapter of the book or you just go to the link and buy the book and start getting a, an advantage on your peers. And then finally, you also see what other services we have to offer. Perfect. All right, Ron, enjoy your move. Hope it works out well and we'll talk soon. Thank you, Andy. All the best and stay healthy. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Ron Carr, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can do that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.